This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. For those of us who are remaining, uh, please open your Bible to John chapter 5. We're going to be taking back up in the Gospel of John, where we've been uh, for a while now. John chapter 5. As you're turning there, I want to just sort of help us get back into the flow of where we're at in John's gospel. So far, Jesus has been conducting a public ministry that has started including some miracles and signs. And he's traveling all around the land of Israel with this ministry, going back and forth. And depending on where he goes, he has sometimes a good reception or a bad reception from the people that are there. And one of the things that we've seen from John that we can see present in his gospel here, but also we see this still operating in our own lives today in our own time, is that it's easy to come to God with our own expectations and understanding of who he is and how he should act. We've seen that in some of the responses that Jesus has gotten so far in his ministry. And if we think we might even be able to see that same tendency in our own lives. That we're creatures who desperately want to be in control of our lives. But when we approach God and try to set the terms for how things will go, for how he should act towards us, what ends up happening is we miss out on the wonderful treasure of knowing God in truth and experiencing the joy of being in relationship and friendship with him. Instead, when we try to set our own expectations for how God should act, what we end up doing is we reduce him to sort of the claw machine at the fair, where if you put in enough quarters and operate the controls of the machine just right, you can get that prize that you have your sight set on. And so God, in our minds, is reduced from the Lord of creation who bends down to us and instead is now just a butler who can sort of manipulate into acting the way we want. So what does this look like practically for us today? Well, it means we try to impress God with our holiness and our devotion. Whether we say it consciously or just sort of pursue it unconsciously, we begin to believe that God will owe us good things if we have a great performance. We begin to make deals with God. I'll be on my best behavior. I'll go to church. I'll set my alarm early so I can crack open my Bible and read a little bit. And then in return, you should make sure that I get the job that I want, get into my top school, or that the scans come back with a good diagnosis, fill in the blank of what we want God to give us. So we end up in this posture where if I do the right things, then God will act in favorable ways. But what happens? Eventually, at some point, things don't go the way we want them to. And then we can get upset with God. Or we're disappointed in him. I've followed you so well. I've been faithful to you. And this is really how you're going to treat me. Or even more dangerously, things do go our way. But then what? We usually don't end up praising God Instead, we end up praising ourselves. I believed strongly enough. I was good enough. 
I worked hard enough. I had enough merit to get the outcome that I wanted. Today in our passage, Jesus is going to interact with two kinds of people, both of whom come to God with their own expectations of how he should act towards them. In each case, Jesus will challenge their expectations and demonstrate the truth of who God is and how he really acts and works among his people. So if your Bible is open to John 5, look with me as I read, starting in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So chapter 5 picks up with Jesus traveling south. Where we left off in John two weeks ago, he was up in Galilee, which is to the north of Jerusalem. And if you remember, on his way up to Galilee, he passed through Samaria, and he spoke with the woman at the well. But then he went further up north to Cana, to sort of around Capernaum, sort of his home base of ministry. And so he's been up north, but now as chapter 5 opens, we learn that there's a Jewish festival that has brought Jesus back to the region of Judea and specifically to the city of Jerusalem. And after entering the city, Jesus comes to a portion on the north side of the city, sort of on the north side of the Temple Mount. And in the part of the city, we see there's an entrance called the Sheep Gate. And what John's doing is help, helping to just set up the context so that his readers would be able to picture What's happening in Jerusalem? You can imagine there's a festival, so there's a bustle. The city is more crowded than usual, but now he's told us exactly where Jesus is at. He's on the north side by that sheep gate near the pool called Bethesda. There was a superstitious belief regarding this pool. At times, the water would begin to stir up into motion. It was believed by some that if you were able to make it down into the water, perhaps even be the first one into the water when it was stirred up into motion, then you could be healed from all kinds of sickness or physical infirmity. So when Jesus arrives at this pool, there's a multitude of invalids, John tells us. A crowd of people suffering from all sorts of ailments, and they're all waiting for the same thing. To see that water begin to move so that they can make the mad dash and be the first one to take a dip. And when he arrives, Jesus looks, he sees this whole multitude, but then focuses his, his attention on one particular man, a man who had been sick for nearly 40 years. John doesn't tell us exactly what his illness is, but it seems at least to involve some sort of immobility because he's lying on a bed, and when he needs to lower himself down into the water, he's unable to do so. And he's had this physical infirmity for almost 40 years, 38 years. So Jesus looks at the man and he knows his history. He knows how long he's suffered with this. 
He approaches the man and asks what might seem like a peculiar question. Do you wish to be healed? On the surface, it seems a very strange thing to ask. Jesus is surrounded by the multitude of sick and suffering. He's in a place known for its reputation as a place of healing. He approaches a man who has been sick and unwell for 38 years and asks, do you want healing? It sort of feels like going to Portillo's during the lunch rush and asking the guy who's been waiting to order for 20 minutes, do you want food? It seems like an obvious yes. There wouldn't be many other reasons to be in that place at that time. There's not a whole lot of reasons for a sick man to be near a pool that's supposed to be a pool of healing. So for the man laying next to the pool of Bethesda, that's exactly what he desires. But Jesus isn't asking this question to be obtuse. Rather, he's doing so to start a conversation with the man and to make an offer. The question isn't just, do you want to be healed? Rather, the question is, would you like me to heal you? Jesus loves starting conversations with questions to draw people into conversation with himself. That's exactly what he's done with this man laying by the pool. He comes up and starts the conversation. Do you desire healing? Implied in that is because I can heal you. But the man, of course, doesn't understand the implication of Jesus' question. So, he answers by explaining the frustration of his current situation. I have no one to put me into this pool when the water stirred up. And so I can't be healed. This man thinks that he is just inches away from finding the healing that he desires, but is incapable of getting it because he doesn't have enough help to cross the finish line. And it's at this response that we should stop to recognize the contrast of what we're seeing. This man is lying next to the pool, hoping that with some luck or good fortune, he might somehow make it into the water first so that the water, working almost as if by magic, could heal his body and make him whole again. And it's in the midst of that desperation, lying by a pool that's inches from his face, but that he has no power to get into. It's in the midst of that, that the word the one who was with God and the one who is God, the word through whom all things were created, including his body and that pool, that word stands right before him and offers him healing. So we have a man lying next to a little pool of water, superstitiously hoping that some magic could cure him there when the Lord of all things stands next to him and says, do you want to be healed? Do you see the contrast of those two things there? The man thinks if he's lucky enough, if he has enough help from others, and if his timing could be better than the multitude of people that are around him, he might have a shot at getting well. But Jesus walks up, and in the midst of the entire crowd, singles him out. Jesus, the only one with true power to heal him, walks up and offers healing as a gift. Christian, apart from Christ, we're like the man laying by the pool, desperately putting our hope in anything and everything we can think of to be made whole again, to be healed, to be delivered, to be fulfilled, thinking that by some miracle or good fortune, 
If we work hard enough or if our timing is good enough or if we have the right set of circumstances, things might just break the right way and go the way we want them to, to save us or help us or heal us or deliver us. But like the man at the pool, God himself has arrived as our Savior. So we don't have to put our hope in fate or chance or long shot or hard work, our own merit. Rather, our hope can rest firmly and securely on that Savior, Jesus Christ. So we should stop and just see that contrast. A man laying desperately longing for healing, but all of his hope is in some magic water that he thinks can do something for him. When who should arrive but the God of creation himself asking, do you want me to heal you? So again, the man explains his hopelessness. I don't have anyone to help me. Enter this water. And I think this water is my best shot at being made whole. And how does Jesus respond? Just a few short words. Get up. Take up your bed and walk. Immediately, the man is healed. 38 years of this Infirmity, decades of being unwell, spending some measure of that time by this pool, frustrated as he watches others dive into the water, hoping to find healing, something he himself can't do. All of that culminates with just a few words from Jesus that heals him completely. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. John doesn't even record the man speaking in response to Jesus. Instead, it just says, at once he was healed. He took up his bed and walked. He did exactly what Jesus told him to do. At one point, he was laying on this bed, and it had to sort of carry him because of his illness. But now he's able to roll that same bed up and carry it on his own two feet. As soon as Jesus speaks the word, it's so. And it all happens so fast that before he knows it, he's healed. Decades of suffering are ended, and he doesn't even know who healed him or where that man went. Now, this man who just experienced this miracle is about to get in trouble with the Jewish leaders. And we'll look at that in a minute. But first, look at how Jesus seeks him out and, and finds out how to give him finds him to give him one final command. If you look at, at verse 14. So after he's healed, the man loses sight of Jesus. But then later in verse 14, John says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus gives this final and most important command. Sin no more. And it comes with a warning. Sin no more so that you don't suffer anything worse than you already have. This man has already suffered 38 years of a sickness that left him laying on a mat, trying to find healing. And yet Jesus warns him that's not even the worst thing that could happen to him. Some have interpreted this warning to mean that the man's initial illness was because of some prior sin. And Jesus is warning him, don't repeat your mistakes or you might end up in an even worse spot. However, it doesn't seem that reading is abundantly clear in the passage. Rather, it seems that Jesus is trying to help the man see that though he suffered for an extended period of time, for almost 40 years, this physical illness, 
though he has suffered much, his larger problem was his spiritual reality and his own sinfulness. And it seems that Jesus is trying to help frame for the man the real condition of his life. He says, see, you're well. He's well physically. He's not experiencing the sickness that he had before. But then Jesus warns him, just because you're well physically doesn't mean you're well spiritually. So he gives him the warning, sin no more. Because the one who continues in sin will suffer something far worse than physical paralysis. For the person who continues in sin and who does not repent, their eventual end is to stand before a holy God in judgment. And Jesus, as he always does when he heals someone physically, is also interested in their spiritual well-being. Not that they've just been relieved from a temporary physical condition, but that they might have eyes to see their spiritual condition and a heart that would turn towards God. But in this particular passage, we don't really see that. The healed man doesn't offer any response to this command and warning from Jesus. Instead, he goes off to talk to the Jewish leaders that he had talked to before. And for this particular miracle in John, what we don't see is a man who has experienced a tremendous life change suddenly turning to trust in God. In fact, it seems that he still doesn't quite care who Jesus is. Which sort of makes sense because when he was at the pool, his main goal was physical healing through whatever means necessary. When he received it, He didn't even stop to learn Jesus' name. He had just gotten what he wanted, so he was on his way. And it was Jesus who had to go and seek him out and find him again to have that follow-up conversation. We started out by saying that it's easy to have our own expectations of who God is and how he will act. We see that this man had his expectations of how God should work in his life. And Jesus came along and completely confounded them. This man had the expectation that I'll have to work for my healing. Get to that pool. Get into the water at the right time. The reality that Jesus demonstrated was that God will be the one who does the work. Jesus spoke that healing into existence without any contribution from the man laying on his bed. The man had the expectation that just kind of any impersonal force might be the thing that shows me favor and that's good enough. And the reality is Jesus shows him that God is a God who can be personally known. For this man, his healing wasn't just some mystical force found in a pool of water. It was Jesus of Nazareth, a man who came up and spoke with him face to face. He didn't have to just trust that Magic or luck or superstition had saved him. He could know his Savior by name and picture his face. This man had the expectation that he had to be in the right place at the right time. But if you notice, it was Jesus who twice sought out that man. You could say, well, he was at the pool, so he certainly got to the right place. 
But remember, there was a multitude of people that were all at that pool seeking healing, and Jesus went up to him specifically. And we're given no explanation as to why Jesus chose him out of that whole multitude of people at the pool, because it shows us is that God will seek out those whom he will give mercy. So we don't have to be in the right place at the right time. It is God who will seek and save the lost. And the last expectation that this man had was that his greatest problem was this physical illness that he had in his body. Jesus tried to show him God cares for your spiritual condition far more than your physical condition. Because how you are spiritually before God has eternal ramifications. And so it's a strange account, a man experiencing this miraculous healing. But we're left short of seeing if it truly had any sort of deeper transformation in his life. Instead, we can see how he was almost blind to who Jesus was. Even after the healing had taken place, he didn't still quite know what to do because his eyes were so fixed on how he thought God should act in his life. But if you notice, the miracle isn't the end of this account. Verse 9 ends by giving us one more important piece of context. It says, now that day was the Sabbath. John has given us some geographic context to this story. We know that Jesus is in Jerusalem on the north side of Bethesda. We have that general backdrop of knowing that it's around the time of a Jewish festival. But until now, we don't have a clear idea of when these things are taking place. And John fills us in. This all happened on the Sabbath. This timing causes an issue. Look, starting in verse 10. After the man is healed, he takes up his mat. Verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. And is it not lawful for you? And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them. The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. The Sabbath was the seventh day of the week. And on that day, everyone in Israel was to rest from doing any work. The Sabbath was instituted by God himself all the way back toward the beginning of Israel's time as a nation. He gave them the Ten Commandments, ten foundational commandments for how Israel was to act. And the fourth commandment said this, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God institutes this day of rest and ties it back to his work of creation. God spoke everything into being in six days, and then Genesis 2 tells us on that seventh day, God rested. And soon as you fast forward to God giving his people these commandments, he gives them as a gift this same pattern. Work for six days, rest on the seventh. 
what we learn from the scriptures is that the Sabbath was God's grace to his people to show them that in him there is rest. And every seventh day as it rolled around and you were to put down all your work and rest was a reminder of the rest that could be found in God. So it's a clear command. Honor the Sabbath. Cease from your work. But by Jesus' time, what had happened was that Jewish rabbis and teachers had tried to figure out how they could faithfully fulfill this commandment and cease from work. And so they, they tried to come up with situations to figure out if I carry out this particular action, would that be considered work and I can't do that on the Sabbath or does that not qualify as work and so I can go ahead and do that on the Sabbath or not? And so there were all sorts of teaching and oral traditions that tried to establish what activities were in bounds on that Sabbath day and what activities were out of bounds and in violation of that fourth commandment. And according to this teaching, there were 39 categories of activity that were to be considered work. You weren't permitted to do any of those 39 categories on the Sabbath day. You had to wait till the next day to be able to do any of those. And unfortunately, for the man who's just been healed, the 39th of those 39 categories was that a person could not carry an item from one place to another. So he, he did good for 38 categories, but on that 39th, he was carrying his bed, which qualified as carrying an item from one place to another. So according to the rabbinic tradition, this healed man now carrying his bed was in violation of Sabbath law. And so he's confronted by the Jewish leaders. Don't you know that you're breaking the Sabbath because you have violated category 39 of 39 by carrying this item? And notice the man's response. Just deflection, just straight deflection. He responds by trying to push the blame and saying, it's the person who healed me. He instructed me to carry this bed that I have, which is true, right? Jesus gave him three commands initially. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And so this man has been directly instructed by Jesus to do the thing that now has him in trouble with the Jewish leaders. So when they question him, why are you breaking the Sabbath law? He just pushes the blame off and says, it's the person who healed me. He told me to do this. And as we read, it seems that this tactic of deflection actually works. The Jewish leaders after that point don't seem too interested in his breaking their tradition any longer. The greater concern for the Jewish leaders isn't this one guy breaking their Sabbath tradition. It's really, it's the person who's going around telling other people to break their Sabbath tradition. So they ask him, well, who was it then? Who's the guy that's going around telling you to break Sabbath? And the man has to sort of sheepishly admit, I, I don't know who it was. I was healed. There was a crowd. I kind of lost sight of him. Didn't really catch a name. Not sure who it was. But then a little while later, as we already read, Jesus finds that healed man again. And that man's able to learn who it was that had healed him, that had made him well again. And Jesus tells him, sin no more. But instead, the man responds by just kind of running back to the Jewish leaders. Because I've got the name. I know who it was. I can report back who's causing the trouble that you're so concerned about. So the man goes back and tells him it was this Jesus. He's the one who healed me, but he's also the one that told me to carry the mat that seems to be against the rules. 
And so then John goes on, verse 16, look at verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Notice the intensification that's happening here. We've seen Jesus come up against Jewish leaders in the book of John so far. And their response has ranged from disagreement and opposition Some of them have even been a little bit curious, we see with Nicodemus, and learning about Jesus. But now, as they find out that he is instructing others to break their Sabbath rules, it says they sought to persecute him. The opposition gets dialed up a notch. But then as Jesus responds to those accusations, that opposition gets dialed up even further to where now, for the first time in this book, we see They're seeking to kill him. They're not just upset at Jesus. They are angry to the point of wanting him dead because of what he is saying and what he is doing. The problem for them is no longer just this guy is breaking our Sabbath rules. Now it seems he's blaspheming. He's making himself equal with God. What we see is that like the healed man These Jewish leaders' expectation of how God will act has been confounded. They expect God to act according to their rules. And when Jesus shows up and doesn't regard their traditions of how to observe the Sabbath with the same reverence as he regards the commands of the Old Testament, they're incensed. Because remember, God gave the command, keep the Sabbath day holy, but it was really the teachers that came along later that added all the specific rules of what that actually looked like. Jesus hasn't broken God's command. He has just not honored the traditions that men have set up. So the teachers are angered. But furthermore, as Jesus responds, he equates himself with God. He says, the Father's working, so that means I must be working. Jewish teachers understood that even on the Sabbath, God maintained his sustaining work throughout creation. And so there was this understanding that the Sabbath was to be kept holy, which meant that for humans, for men and women, there was all these activities we needed to cease from, the 39 categories we had of work that we needed to cease from in order to honor the Sabbath. But for God... Jewish leaders understood that he couldn't cease from all of his works because God was sustaining the universe and all of creation. And so if every seven days God just stops sustaining things, everything flies off into chaos and stops existing. So they understood that in some measure, God's work of creation and sustenance continues on. So he's the only one that doesn't need to rest in the same way on the Sabbath as men and women. And Jesus says, knowing that this was their understanding, Jesus says, the Father continues his work, which means that I have to continue mine. So this isn't just a response 
to try to combat their traditions. Jesus knowingly is responding by saying, whatever you think it is God can do on the Sabbath, I can do that same thing because I'm God. That's the implication. So their opposition to Jesus escalates all the way from disagreement through persecution to now seeking to kill him. Like the man at the pool, these leaders are so caught up in their own understanding of what God will look like that they fail to recognize God standing in front of them. They're angered that Jesus would equate himself with God because this Jesus doesn't seem to follow their rules and fit their mold of what God should look like. But all along, we shouldn't forget why they're having this conversation in the first place. Because a man who had been sick for 38 years got up and walked just because Jesus said he should. So they've seen two things. They've seen a man miraculously healed from 38 years of affliction, and they've seen some of their Sabbath traditions broken, and they're just fixated on the latter. They don't even bother to figure out how that first thing would be possible. It doesn't even equate for them to start to question if that healing might be a sign of power that supports Jesus' claim of who he is. Rather, they focus on the criteria that they've created, that Jesus has failed to meet. So they rule out any possibility that Jesus might actually be God. They're willing to ignore this miracle to focus on their rules to say you can't possibly be who you say you are. So we can try to sit back and look at these, these two groups the healed man laying at the pool, not fully realizing who Jesus is even after he's been healed. We can look at the Jewish leaders and think we might be able to be more discerning than them, that maybe if we saw the miracle, we'd be able to put the pieces together and understand that if a man is able to heal miraculously and then later claims he might be God, we should maybe consider that. We can think we might have more discernment than the Jewish leaders who are enraged at Jesus We can think we might have better understanding than the man laying by the pool, but how often in our lives do we prove the exact opposite? That we are like that man at the pool, that we're like those leaders. Where we lose sight of who God is. Even if we have known him and followed him for years or decades, we can forget who he is. Our hearts can grow cold to him. And so we can look at God, we can look at our circumstances, and we can believe that he's dealt unfairly with us, that we deserved better than this. Or we can think he hasn't recognized my obedience, all the good work I've put in. Or we can think he's grown tired of my failure, and he just wants nothing to do with me. Or we can think, He's, he's ignorant of my weakness. If he knew how much this hurt, if he knew how difficult this was, he surely would change my circumstance. And so he just must be ignorant of what I'm going through. We can think he's uncaring towards our pain because we've set up our expectations of how God should act 
based on our own understanding. Christian, none of that is who God is. Instead, God has revealed to us exactly who he is and how he acts towards us through Scripture. And so that means that we don't have to try and trust in some magic water like the man sitting at the pool where we just think, it's kind of mystical, I don't fully get it, but hopefully it all works out if I do the right thing. We don't have to trust in our own performance like the Jewish leaders where we can just say, if I make sure to follow all the rules and I perform perfectly and I get all my sin rid of, then things will be okay. We don't have to trust in any of that because that's not how God acts towards us. He doesn't wait for us to make the first move. He doesn't wait for us to clean ourselves up a bit. He doesn't wait for us to merit his attention before he turns toward us. Rather, Paul says in Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. When we come to God with our own set of expectations, we will miss out on the joy of knowing him and of following him as our father and calling him friend. When we come to God and and think that I have to do the right things, say the right things, or be the right person, we miss out on the fact that God has shown us that before the world was founded, he has chosen us in him. That before we had the first faint pulse of spiritual life, God has sent us a savior that might make us holy and blameless before him. All because of his love, he has done this. So that any who trust in Christ are adopted into his family and are forever after called daughters and sons of God Most High. He has done all this and blessed us through his beloved Jesus Christ because of who he is. And whenever we come close to forgetting that, let us run back to his word that we might remember it and see him fully. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the revelation of your word that we might see you and know you rightly. We don't have to lean on our own understanding. We ask that you would give us a clearer picture and vision of who you are. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.